bag of money allows you access to authentic reality. And you don't get that through if you take the trips from the regular guidebooks. They steer you to the hotels, to the tourist establishment, and it's a managed experience, and it isn't the real thing. So I had found the real thing, and I wanted to tell people how they can do the same thing. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with a veteran traveler and author, Ed Buren, and if that name sounds familiar, it could be that you heard it in a certain book I wrote many years ago, in a section where I realized I wasn't the first person to use the word vagabonding. I'd almost convinced myself that I'd given hip new phrasing to a certain attitude of travel when I discovered a dog-eared paperback entitled Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa on a shelf of a used bookstore in Tel Aviv. Written by an American named Ed Byrne, the book had not only been published before my travel column hit the internet, it had been written before I was born. That's from the audio version of my own vagabonding book. Ed Buren actually wrote a second book called Vagabonding in the USA in the late 1970s, and I found all of his writing to be full of simple, unpretentious wisdom about the traveling life. Ed's vagabonding books came out around the same time as Lonely Planet and other publishing pioneers were revolutionizing the world of independent travel in ways that are still felt today. Ed is now 85 years old and he's based in Nevada City, California, where he works as a poet and tarot deck engineer and online bookseller. I talked to him by Skype and we discussed his experiences as a vagabonding pioneer in Europe back in the days when World War II was a recent memory and mass tourism had yet to arrive on the continent. We talk about how rigid expectations and over-planning was the biggest obstacle to meaningful travel back then, as is still the case now, and how you should trust your instincts on the road and avoid wrapping yourself in what he calls a, quote, shroud of information, end quote. A lot of our interview consists of me reading him quotes he wrote 50 years ago so we can discuss his travel philosophy, which still feels relevant today. One piece of advice that still holds true is taking things slow, and a great way to implement a slow, non-traditional vagabonding journey is to travel on a multi-stop, round-the-world flight itinerary of the sort offered by my longtime sponsor, Airtrex. Check out their trip planning tools at Airtrex.com, and if you do book a trip through Airtrex, be sure to check out Tortuga, my other sponsor, which designs backpacks and backpack accessories for vagabonding journeys. Go to rolfpotts.com slash tortuga to see a selection of their packs, and if you see something you like, that rolfpotts.com slash tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. But for now, please listen in on my conversation with vagabonding pioneer Ed Buren. Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa came out in 1971, and Lonely Planet started in 1972, and Moon Guides uh, through Bill Dalton started in 1973. Did you know those guys? I know that you're friendly with Kevin Kelly, who I've talked to on this podcast. Uh, I'm familiar with all those guys. Um, I I met some of them at book conventions when I was hustling my books in the early days. And so, yeah, I'm familiar with all of them. So I'm curious, just on a personal level, um, is it right that you're 85 years old? That's right. So you're not really a a baby boomer, right? No, no. I was a little behind the, you know, the hippie wave by about ten years, um, but but I very much, you know, I uh, I was working in San Francisco in the '60s, at a job that you know in the electronics industry, oh. and it was and I was there because I had gotten trained in the Navy when I served in the Korean War. I got electronics training. So I took advantage of that when I got discharged and made it my livelihood. But I was never that happy about it. And along came the 60s and the hippie revolution. And I said, you know, I've got to get out of here. So what I did is I arranged to take, well, I took a year off from my work and uh, went to Europe. (laughs) My wife and daughter and I. I, I, I bought an old VW van, drove it across country, put it on board an ocean liner as 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 baggage. Cost three hundred dollars to put my van on an ocean liner and ship to England, huh. which you can't do anymore. But uh, then when I got to England, I rolled my van off the boat and was ready to go. Had a camp vehicle and started a year in Europe. 
and and your wife and your daughter were with you. Um, yes. And so and where where did you go, and what did you do? Well, we toured all around Europe, uh, all around Northern Europe, and visited as many countries as possible. And the the goal was to go uh, settle in Spain, though, where I had the idea to try to sell my photography and to write. So uh, we eventually wound up in Spain, uh, went up and down the Spanish coast everywhere into every little nook. And, you know, I had I had heard all about uh, how wonderful Spain was and the beaches and all this. And we went there and found that it was already too late. Basically, the tourist boom had started. Hotels were everywhere. And, it, and we took every little dirt road and every little corner and byway and finally found a little village that had not yet been affected by the tourist boom. And that's where I rented a house on the coast for $20 a month, um, right on the beach. And had no running water, had two wells, a freshwater well, saltwater well. And I uh, sat there and read books and set up a dark room, you know, with a still water dark room where I had to change the water frequently because there was no running water. And it was great. And I hitchhiked to Denmark, and that started the second half of my European travels where I traveled alone. And my wife and daughter eventually went back home on their own. And I spent another six months hitchhiking all around Europe and East Europe and got as far east as Turkey. Uh, and, and then when I came back after a year, I said, well... This has been quite an experience. I think I should write a book about it. <laughs> so that's how it began. And that your very first book was actually about hitchhiking in Europe, wasn't it? Yeah, my first book was uh, it was called Hitchhiking in Europe, and uh, it was not only self published. I, I did the press work on it. I, I had a you know when I went back, I had to. Yeah, I was dead broke when I landed. I had to pick up my old job for a while. And uh, I had lunches with a guy who worked down the block from me for a printing company. And I told him I had book ambitions. And he said, oh, if you write a book, you can print it on our presses. You know, I'll teach you how to do it. Huh. So, so that's what I did. I had my secretary at work type the book. I had my girlfriend do the illustrations, drawings. And my friend taught me how to do press work at night after his business was closed. And I actually did all the camera work, made the plate, burned the plates, ran the presses, and printed and published and wrote and illustrated my own book, which was Hitchhiking in Europe. You know, weirdly, this sounds like another guy I've talked to on my podcast about living in San Francisco during the exact same era. Did you know Charles Plymel by any chance? No, I heard of him. He's a poet, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. He he published some of... Um, uh, some of the early Zap comics uh, and some of the early beat poetry, uh, and he's also a little bit older than a baby boomer. Um, but it, it just sounds—it sounds interesting that he was in that same community doing a lot of do-it-yourself type publishing around the same time. Well, this was my first try. I'd never written a book before. I'd never published anything. But you know, the fact was that when I returned from Europe. I was really excited about uh, what I had learned and what I experienced. And I felt that it, uh, it was important that I tell the world about it uh, because I thought it was this fantastic secret that, you know, you read the standard guidebooks and they don't really tell you what is possible. You know, uh, for me, you know, this uh, vagabonding allows you access to authentic reality. And that's what's exciting about vagabonding. And you don't get that through if you take the trips from the regular guidebooks. They steer you to the hotels, to the tourist establishment. And it's a managed experience. And it isn't the real thing. So I had found the real thing. And I wanted to tell people how they can do the same thing. Yeah, well, I want to touch on some specific things you wrote about because I found your vagabonding books to be very quotable and, and just full of common sense advice. But I'm curious to know, is, is the Hitching book sort of a precursor to vagabonding in Europe and North Africa, or is it a different tone? Yeah, no, it was definitely a precursor because it went through a couple of printings. It was very successful. Uh, it got reviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle and the LA Times and other places, and I had a lot of orders for it. Um, 
and I had a, a distributor for it, and so it was distributed around San Francisco and California as well. But but I thought, well, let me try to expand this into a larger book. So I wrote a book and I submitted it to several major publishers, and it was rejected because the prevailing opinion at the time they said one of the critiques was, "Oh, your writing style is so uh, is unprofessional." Okay, huh. because. Because my writing style is very, you know, person to person. It's like I'm talking to you, uh-huh. and and that wasn't the prevailing style. They, you know, they said you should take some writing courses and learn how to write a professional book. So, but um, the uh, the one of the distributors or the main distributor of that book, Hitchhiking in Europe, was a wannabe publisher. And so he made a publishing arrangement to uh, to publish New Age books from the West Coast uh, with Random House. And I showed him my manuscript, and he said, okay, that's it. I want to publish it. And that was the first book he published in a co-publishing arrangement with Random House. So, um, you know, he actually, like, found the book, and then Random House published and distributed it. So uh, that's how it got started. It all started with that Hitchhiking in Europe book. Yeah, which was successful, which was self-published and successful on a grassroots level. And I get the sense that, that you know, the, your Random House tie-in version of your Vagabonding book was also pretty successful. Did it Did it take off? Did it, was it good for you professionally? Yes, uh, yes although uh, they made some mistakes in that, you know, I was so irritated at the time because, first of all, um, they published it, and it uh, um, they had to throw out the entire the entire print run because of some mistakes they made. I don't know what they were, but it delayed the publishing of the book until the following season. And then when it came out in the following season, it immediately sold out. Huh. It's being run, and they couldn't reprint it in time. So it actually... You know, it, it, it wasn't available to the public at a time when the public really wanted this book. So, however, you know, it, it sold out several print runs and it went through five or six printings at least. But it could have sold a lot more if they had timed it better and hadn't fucked it up. Huh. I'm curious to know about the name Vagabonding. Where did you where did you come up with that name? I don't remember exactly. I think I was always familiar with the term. Um, I mean, you know, even as a little kid, I was always interested in travel, and there were certain travel writers that I followed. And I just liked that idea of of travel that wasn't programmed, you know, so that you went out into the world and you didn't, and it was an adventure, which means you the outcome is unknown. Mm. So, uh, and that was exciting to me that, uh, you know, I mean, there were various times when I was in Europe and on the road and I find myself in a place, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going to be that night. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. And and I'm ecstatically happy. (laughs) Some of the happiest moments of my life is being lost somewhere and not knowing where I'm going, what I'm going to do. And the freedom of that is just so joyful that's what i found for myself that you know to free yourself of the normal constraints of you know i mean you know we're so entangled in habit and culture and language and our work our responsibilities and if you can truly find a place where you feel free it's so empowering and joyful well, that, that joy comes through a lot in your book, not just Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa, but your, your later Vagabonding books as well. Before I dig into some of these philosophies I, I'm curious of asking you about, um, I'm curious to know how Europe was different back then, because I remember reading Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa and being surprised that you found like World War II damage in Warsaw. Um, so how was traveling in Europe a different monster than it is now, or, or is it fairly similar? Well, I mean, in some senses, I mean, it's similar. The buildings are there, whatever. But it's a very different place than it was 50 years ago. Um, I mean, Europe was much more conscious of having come out of a war. I mean, when I traveled in Germany, for example, 
I was just aware of the heavy German war guilt that every the whole German nation was soaked in war guilt, and there was war damage in places where the Germans had been, as they say, like in Poland. Um, um, and, you know, there wasn't the degree of tourism. I mean, one of the problems I understand now is that, you know, Europe is absolutely overrun. The whole world is overrun with tourists and and the world has been correspondingly corrupted. Hmm. So, like, for example, I went to Stonehenge and you could climb on the stones. Now they have a big gate around it. You can't get near the stones. I went to the Acropolis and you could run around the building. Now you can't get near the building. Um I went to the Anne Frank house, you know, when it was this funky little building and you go upstairs and walk around the rooms where Anne Frank had been in the attic and there was nobody there, me and one or two other people. Now you got to Now they've rebuilt the whole building. It's a huge museum. You've got to make reservations months in advance and you can barely find the original rooms. They're all part of a tour that's packed with people. You know, it's, it's so corrupt. I mean, it's so changed. It's Europe was once way more accessible and uh, and far far less affected by the impact of massive tourism. Yeah, it sounds like really the in terms of sheer numbers, by comparison, in the 1960s, you comparatively had Europe to yourself. Yes, and and it was unspoiled. You could, you know, I mean, as I say, at that time, at least in Spain, it was the beginning of the huge tourist boom, and you could see what was going on at the time. I mean, Spain at that time, all along the coast, every little coastal town we went to was springing up with high-rises and condos, and the British were pouring in, and you could see the handwriting on the wall, for sure, but now that process is complete, and you know, there's hardly any place left on the coast that's not been, you know, made into a material benefit for real estate people and so forth. Well, this actually brings up another sort of a side question. Are you are you familiar with a book called The Drifters? I think it's by James Missioner. Yes, yes, it's uh, it's about hippie travelers in that same era. Yeah, and it's it's a, a lot of the the initial scenes of the book are set in Spain, are set in a version of coastal Spain, maybe during this time when it was sort of at its tipping point from being somewhat of a backwater to a little bit yeah, more of a mass tourism. There. Yeah, actually, you know, I had uh, when I was planning to to drop out of my work ethic there back in the sixties. Um, I, I was planning to go to Mexico, actually, because I, it was a shorter step. It was just across the border. But I met a, an, a, a, this British vagabond who, um, uh, who kind of lived off the streets. He lived out of dumpsters, what he collected out of dumpsters, although he had an illustrious past. He was a former race car driver in the, in the Indianapolis 500 and a pilot and whatnot. But he had lived in Spain. And he he convinced me that no, forget Mexico, I should go to Spain. So that's why that was the goal for me. But as I say, when I got there, I found that this was this tipping point that that Spain he described was almost finished at that time. Although I did find, you know, my own version that worked for me. But I had to really comb the whole Spanish coast to find it to find this little village. Uh, which at the time there were no English speakers there. Uh, there was not even a store in town. Um, and there was a, a bodega, a wine shop, but no, no grocery store. But now I've checked it online and that village has vanished. It's all high, you know, high rises and condos. And I don't believe anything of that village has left huh. from years ago. Huh. Well, you had a, you know, you ran into this vagabond who sort of influenced your journey into Spain itself rather than Mexico. I'm curious to know if, the, if there were any like philosophical or literary influences on you at that time of your life. Were you, were you reading books that inspired your, your independent thinking or was it mostly just road wisdom that went into your, your books? No, there was books were important. I read Zorba the Greek at that time, which had a big impact on me, um, uh, just as a, a taste of European culture and as a philosophy of life, uh, a kind of, you know, 
very come see, come saw. And and uh, I actually wound up, uh, when I was in Greece, I went to his grave to pay homage to him uh, for having inspired me first to come to Europe. And then I also, uh, I read a lot of Henry Miller. Hmm. Um, when I got to Spain and I finally found this little little cottage, I would sit day after day and just read Henry Miller books one after the other for months on end. Uh, that sounds kind of cool, actually. Um <laughs> Um, I, I want to dig into some of the philosophy of your book just because since for my average listener, it costs 65 to $500 to buy your books, I want to give them sort of a taste of the philosophy that goes into your book. So just sort of topic by topic, I might ask you about some things you've read and we can discuss some of them. So for example, you have this line, realizing that you will die greatly clarifies your vision of life and stimulates opportunities for making the vision real. To take life for granted is to take life away. If you can't feel your own miraculousness, you are missing the quintessential experience of life. Yay. <laughs> Great quote. I'm glad I said that. <laughs> yeah. So so what what was behind what underpinned that way of thinking? That's that's sort of a classic memento more way of thinking, you know, the idea that you should live richly because you will die one day. Uh what were you thinking when you wrote that? Uh, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I mean, I can't trace where my philosophy arises exactly. I mean, I was, I read a lot as a kid, and um, I was inspired by Richard Halliburton books. You know, the 1930s traveler who, you know, swam in the pools at the Taj Mahal and was the first to fly over Mount Everest in an airplane and so forth. And his lighthearted vision of travel, where he combined. Like he made it fun while respecting, you know, the institutions and the places kind of, you know, struck a chord with me. I, I, I really liked that. And also I, I went to pay homage to him. I visited had what had been his home in Laguna Beach when I was in the Navy mm-hmm. um, uh, because he was an early, big early influence on me as far as the travel background. He died, uh, he died young, didn't he? Yeah, he uh, he tried to uh, sail from California to China in a Chinese junk that he built, and he disappeared at sea and was never heard from again mm. in the late 30s, I believe. Yeah. I'll read you another quote here. It's actually one of my favorites. It says, Money is the wealth of the materialist that works miracles in the realm of the physical. Time is the wealth of the pilgrim and works miracles in all realms. To our so-called modern way of thinking, time is money. As a result, we have very little time. It's so expensive that none of us can afford very much of it. Yet isn't it curious that the richer you are, the less time you can spare from tending your riches? I'm mixing up some quotes here. But as a vagabond, your time is your capital and life is your collateral. With enough time, you can finally stop counting it and saving it. So save what little money you have to possess to to possess you, that you possess to beat the basic survival requirements, but spend your time lavishly in order to create life values that make the fire worth the candle. Yep. So, so time wealth, um, that's another, that's another idea with very deep philosophical grounding, but you describe it in sort of this delightfully conversational way. How did you wrap your head around the idea of time wealth? Well, it was just something I realized when I was on the road here. Now I have all this time. I'm broke. I have very little money, but I have this wealth of time. And I felt so much richer than when I had money and no time. Uh, you know, it was like an obvious conclusion. And and, uh, and and But it's interesting. It's hard to live. Now I'm caught in a situation now where I'm, you know, obviously I'm short of time. I'm 85 years old, but I'm still relatively broke. I mean, I get by. But I can't afford to retire. I have to keep selling books to pay my bills, and I have no time to write, which is uh, kind of the tragedy of my life at the moment. It's my goal to to free myself so that I can write more. I mean, I have at least 10 books in mind that I would like to do, plus poetry books and photography books. But I spend all my time you know, selling books at 10 and $12 each so that I can pay my bills. And it's not as if, I mean, I, I just called it a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. I mean, because I enjoy book selling. Uh, it's what I have to do at the moment. And it is kind of my philosophical underpinning is I live in the now. 
uh, I don't future trip and I don't reminisce about the past too much. I try to be right where I am because that's all. I mean, you know, that's the core of my philosophy is be here now. That is the wisest thing ever said. And uh, it's something I'm still trying to live. And and uh, it's a challenge every moment to wake up and realize, oh, here I am right now. Pay attention. Yeah, that's a that's a, a very true thing. It's interesting to hear too that the that the the challenge of time wealth never fully ends. You know, when I was talking to Kevin Kelly, he says that the young have more time than money, and that the older older people have more money than time, uh, and so that sort of influences how people travel at certain ages. Um, so you have ten books that you want to write. Are any of them about travel, or are they they mostly poetry and other no. themes? No, one of the books I I kept uh, I kept a journal while I was on my first trip. It's the only, pretty much the only time I did that. So I have a pretty complete record of that first trip, and I have all the photographs I took. And so I would like to do a book that describes my first trip to Europe because it was dramatic and full and exciting, and and I think it has great material. So that's one book I'd like to write. Um, then I'd like to write more books on the tarot. Uh, I have, I'd like to publish several books of my travel photos from different places, including India and Mexico and the United States. Um, and I, and I, so there's, there's a lot of work that, uh, that I see is ahead of me if I find the time to do it, which, so it's exciting. I feel that there's so much I can do yet. Uh, you know, I'll never run out of out of uh, material to write about. It's, but I will run out of time. So. <laughs> do, are you a collaborator? Is there someone who might help you curate those those photos, or are you sort of into doing things your own way? Well, I have a uh, a, a guy, a tech friend, my friend Bill, who visits me on and off, and he helps me out with tech issues. Um, but he's hardly a collaborator. He just helps me through some of the rough spots with, uh, like computer issues. Uh, no, I'm basically on my own and, uh, I'm kind of a hermit these days. I'm, um, I did want to say that, you know, vagabonding then and vagabonding now to me is still about people. It's about meeting people and, uh, experiencing other cultures, experiencing authentic reality as opposed to the package version that everyone wants to sell you. So uh, it's like the kind of vagabonding that I did is not possible anymore because you can't be lost anymore if you have an iPhone and you can't not know where you're going, etc. So some of the mystery is gone, but that doesn't change the essential fact that the world is out there to be discovered, especially through its people, and that hasn't changed. Uh, so the, the, but, uh, the internet and is like a shroud. It's an, if there's too much information and, and in the old days, we didn't have that information. You had to go dig it out yourself. And that was part of the adventure. That was part of the experience. You came to a town, you'd have to find a map, you know, whatever you'd have to find a place to crash. Uh, and you had to get that information the hard way. Now it's all laid out for you, but that information is no longer is no longer. I mean, you didn't get it. It's suspect. It's not trustworthy. It's not yours uh, because you didn't experience the finding of it, and you don't even know if it's true. You know, a lot of fake news, a lot of phony information. So the challenge these days is to not let the internet do your trip for you. You still have to do your own trip. But a lot of people are, are, you know, fooled by thinking that, oh, uh, my trip can be arranged on the Internet and it's all, you know, that's that's to me a phony concept. It's, it, it, you're not it's not a real experience. Yeah. You know, in, in your books, you talk about avoiding your travel agent like he was the cops. And now, in a way, we have a travel agent in our pocket everywhere we go. Um, That's right. And so you, the enemy is with you every moment trying to, you know, mess with your mind. 
and that's kind of a danger. However, you like for example, there is a, a meeting of these two cultures, and like through couchsurfing, for example, to me that you know, couchsurfing is an almost ideal meeting of the internet and vagabonding. Uh, you find the people you're going to go visit on the internet, but when you visit them, you have real experiences because for the most part, they're not wealthy. It's not a hotel. It's people who enjoy meeting other travelers and want to show you their, you know, their society, their lives. And that's vagabonding, pure and simple. Have you hosted people in Nevada city through, through, Uh, Yes, uh, a few times, but you know this is kind of an out of the way location, so I, it's it doesn't happen too often. But yeah, I've had visitors from uh, Japan, from uh, Czechoslovakia, from Britain, from other places. Um, you know, um, uh, the reason they come here is because uh, Nevada City is kind of a marijuana capital, huh. so a lot of travelers come through to find work as marijuana trimmers and. I've hosted quite a few of those, and uh, and and they're great. You know, this is like the old days. People, you know, I met like this Czech couple came, and they came to Canada from Czechoslovakia. They bought a cheap car. They drove it to the Northwest Territories where they picked mushrooms for a season. Then they worked their way down into California and contacted me as couch surfers and uh, they stayed with me for about a month uh, and they were wonderful travelers wonderful people and now I have you know a contact in Czechoslovakia if I ever go there but it's very much like it was 50 years ago when you meet these kinds of people and and um, they have that same kind of ethos they they're, they're excited about seeing the world they're willing to work, they're willing to sleep on the couch, anything goes, uh, and that's like it used to be. Yeah, I, I love that whole idea of of just sort of shunting off all of your expectations and all your plans and letting things happen. So I'm going to quote you some more things from your writing. You say, at home, at work, at school, you have less space to be who you are because you're too busy being who you think everyone else wants you to be, and you offer travel as an alternative to that. How does travel allow you to to be who you want to be? Well, it breaks the mold. You no longer can depend on you know your your these old habits which you've inculcated. And when you know, I also say break a habit for freedom, because uh, I think I have a theory of energy involved in my books too. That like when you get into a routine or a habit or, or a thing you do regularly, it, it binds a certain amount of energy that it requires to do that. So when you break that habit, you free that energy. Suddenly you have all this energy that is unbound. And and it allows you to have a whole new view of life and a new, a new energy toward life. And so it's very freeing. Yeah, and I think part of that is tied into facing fears. I'm going to read you another quote from you. It says, as a vagabond, you begin to face your fears now again instead of continuously sidestepping them in the name of convenience. You build an attitude that makes life more rewarding, which in turn makes it easier to keep doing it. It's called positive feedback, and it works. Vagabonding is a way of facing those fears and beginning that feedback process. So uh, how have you found... uh, travel as a way to just completely um, embrace fear in a certain sense? Well, I mean, uh, when I first started hitchhiking, I mean, that's a kind of a perfect example. You put yourself on the road, you're like naked on the road to any passerby who can mess with you or take you on an adventure, and you expose yourself to reality. Uh, And you have no idea what's going to come along. And that's a facing fear. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust the process and see what happens. And if you can do that, if you can steal yourself to put your thumb out there and expose yourself to reality, you find what you discover is that, oh, I can do this. <laughs> this is really not so hard. And facing fears, like I say in my book, can be the most fun you ever had. Do you hitchhike anymore or do you, do you pick up hitchhikers? I pick up hitchhikers occasionally, um, but not so much, and I don't hitchhike anymore, although I still have a fantasy of that 
what a grand trip it would be if I just hit the road like at 85 and started hitchhiking around. I'm sure it would be great. Um, but I'm too busy. You know, I, I've, I've put myself back into the trap to where I'm saddled with responsibilities and I have to do my job and I have to pay my bills. And it's very irksome to me. Uh, I want to be freer. Uh, at the same time, I have to, I mean, I'm very grateful for my life. I have a house, you know, a home that's basically paid for. I have a roof over my head. I have a good life. I have a job I like. I, you know, I get to travel now and then. Um, I have some good friends. Uh, I no longer have um, partners, wives, girlfriends. Uh, I've kind of transcended that. <laughs> and I'm a happy hermit. Uh, but I still have ambitions to do all kinds of things. Uh, you know, I, I even though I'm late in life, I have so many things I want to do yet. So, uh, and I'm excited about it. You've said that uh, any place can be magical. That sort of reminds me of what you were talking about just now. How do you embrace the magic of a place like Nevada City that you know quite well? Well, uh, I mean, Nevada City is a very magical place. It's a small town, but it's just... It, it, it pumps with life, with art, you know, with wonderful people, with beauty, with natural beauty. Um, but I think it's it's just a typical example. Maybe it's a little bit atypical in that it is actually a destination that a lot of people come for. You know, I mean, what's going on in Nevada City now is what's going on in so many other places. You call someplace paradise and it's over, you know, the people rush to it and destroy it. So right now in Nevada City, it's a very desirable location. Rents are going up. It's hard to find any place. Uh, you know, it's the same process that happens anywhere once when a place becomes too desirable. Um, and it's happening across the world because all the desirable places are being filled up uh, with people who want that somehow in their lives. And they think that if I go to a certain place, I'll be better off. Uh, my thought is that you should find the magic where you are, uh, because I, I do believe that's true. No matter where you live on the planet, it, 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 we're involved in a magical process. The beauty is everywhere, and every mo every moment of life is a miracle, actually. You've talked before about how Spain sort of went through a transformation when it became famous or popular with visitors. Uh, is Nevada City a different place now, or is it just a more crowded version of the place it's always been? I think it's a good example at the moment of a place that is really blossoming. It's flourishing right now. We have a very flourishing arts community here. I mean, this town is, uh, technically, it's 3,500 people, I believe. But the surrounding area, there are like 40,000 people living in the hills around. But it's still a small town in the mountains. And I, I'm always amazed that in this small town, there's as much culturally going on as I experienced when I lived in San Francisco. I mean, obviously, there's more going on in San Francisco, but the quality of arts, entertainment, and culture here is equivalent to that in San Francisco. This is a very highly developed uh, place uh, which offers everything that is good in life. And you know, I'm very grateful to be here. A, a couple of the travel quotes I want to bounce off you, quotes of your own. You say that travel in, in general and vagabonding in particular produces an awesome density of experience, a cramming together of incidents, impressions of life detail that is both stimulating and exhausting. A day seems like a week, a week like a month. You may be excited, bored, confused, desperate, and amazed all in the same happy day. Is that is that something that you that you realized on, on your Europe trip in, in the 60s? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I I still when I go traveling, I have the same feeling. Like I was in uh, I was in Holland two years ago for two weeks, and I've been through Holland before. I've hitchhiked through it years ago and so forth. But I never really looked at it, so I had a chance. I spent two weeks of which I only spent two days in Amsterdam, and the rest of the two weeks everywhere else in Holland. And and uh, once again, I was just amazed at. Uh, you know, the, the, the density of the travel, that if you are aware, you keep your eyes open, you learn and see so much. 
I, I was astounded at how much I learned about the Netherlands and how much I didn't know about it. Um, and to me, that was a, a very powerful learning. That, wow, I just go there for two weeks, and now my whole view of this place has changed. I know so much more about it. I've met so many people. I've seen so many places. My awareness has been raised and totally changed. And that's the power of travel in general. But as I say, most people who travel, unfortunately, you know, opt for a different experience. They're into the the food and the sights, and they're not into the people and culture. Yeah, well, you say uh, ordinary travelers uh, go through life trying to control everything and protect their delusions from the nasty shocks of reality. Vagabonds know better, and they book their sh- trip with a, an agent called Chance. And of course, now that we have a, a travel agent in, in our pockets, um, how can we how can we maintain that travel agent called Chance? How can we break away from our tendency to to look down at our phone when we should be looking out at the world? Yeah, well, there's, you know, the, there is a certain kinds of information that's useful, like a map, for example. It'd be nice to have a map sometime, and you can have the map. It's, you know, it's certainly okay to have a map. We need information, and information is like the background of, you know, you, you got to have information when you're traveling, and that's partly why you're there, is to gain information. But you want it to be your own information that you learn through your own experience, not second or third hand from the internet or from some blog or whatever. So so you want to use that kind of information that's available to you sparingly. You want to use the objective information and the subjective information you obtain yourself. So, I mean, I don't travel with a cell phone. Um, actually, I don't have a cell phone. I have one, but it's only a Wi-Fi. I use it as a mini computer not as a phone. Um, and I don't think I ever want to be hooked up to it as a phone uh, because I don't, I don't want to have access to it when, when I travel. Um, for that reason, it's distracting and it's not reliable. I The only thing you can rely on is your own experience. And that's kind of the, that's the bedrock of, of what you gain from vagabonding, I think, is that you encounter... Uh, authentic reality that you can trust and and then you're set if if there's something in that you know that you've verified for yourself that is enormously helpful i wonder if that is the factor that allows time to slow down when you when you rely on your own experience and your own resources then time is experienced in a different way um, I, I just wonder, I'm curious to know what you think, if, if maybe that experience of deep time is less possible, not just when you go through travel agents, but when you're, when you're mediating everything through online advice. Well, I agree. Sure. Um, you know, it's like when, if you're on the road and as I say, you're lost somewhere and you don't know what you're going to do, that, that's, <clears throat> That, that experience is so direct and empowering, and it consumes time. It's very time-consuming to find things out by yourself. But that sticks with you and forms the, the bedrock of a belief system that without that, if you're just relying on the Internet, you're on shifty ground all the time, and you don't know what to trust, and you're kind of lost. Uh, so you can't get grounded unless there's something that you have verified yourself personally. Yes, I know this is true because I went there and I talked to people and I saw it myself. I put my hands on it and that forms a foundation then for everything else. Well, I'm curious to know what perspective you might be able to bring in from a different era of travel from, from the 1960s you know, because I talked to Kevin Kelly, he had some really interesting insights about what travel was like in the 1970s, which I sort of idealized as a traveler in the 1990s, which of course is a very different era from travel right now. So as a as a man whose travel career and philosophy spans many eras and decades, what might what advice might you have to give to someone who is a little bit insecure because they have a smartphone in their pocket that they feel like they need to go back to all the time and tend to avoid this direct experience? 
Well, it's a little hard to say. Uh, it would vary for every person. You know, just to, to be aware, exercise caution that you have this tool in your pocket, which is, you know, it's like a, putting a shroud of information over yourself. It's, it's too, there's too much information available and not enough of it is your own. So it, it's striking a balance. That's, that's why I say I like the idea of couchsurfing because you use the internet to find the person you're going to visit. And without that, you can't find him. But, but then when you get there, you have this direct experience with a real person who is not bound to the travel industry. He's not doing this for you to make money, etc. That makes it real. So there, there is this combination you can work where you can get the information, objective information that's useful to you, but it doesn't. It's not the basis of your trip. It's not the basis of your ideas or your goals. Those are determined by what happens to you, who you meet, what your direct experience is. You don't lean on the internet. Um, you use it where it's applicable but you don't use it when it gets in the way of your, um, you know, interaction with the world. You want that to be one-on-one, -on -one, not mediated through your iPhone. Yeah. I feel like I, I feel like a, a codger sometimes because, because I keep telling people, especially younger people to, to be less dependent on their phone. And that, I don't know if there's maybe an equivalent of there was a time when suddenly trains were available and, and there was a certain class of person who encouraged people to walk because walking is a is its own kind of locomotion that 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 is a little bit more organic. So I wonder if, if technology is always something that we, we have been utilizing or and are simultaneously at odds with. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I say somewhere else and I think it's true that the slower you move, the deeper your experience gets. So walking is the ultimate travel experience, I believe. Uh, and the faster you go, the, the, you know, the least authentic version is when you fly. That's, that's a total fantasy of technology and really has nothing to do with travel in its historic sense. It's, as a matter of fact, it's, it's like an impediment to, to learning anything from travel. You learn bullshit. Uh, so I've always disliked airline travel for that reason. And I think the best means of locomotion is walking. Uh, because in walking, you, you move slow enough to where you encounter everything in your environment. You see every little bush, every person going by. The, you notice all the details, and that enriches your life so much. So you can see more than in walking a mile than riding on an airplane for five hours, you know, or for all day. Um, so it, it's ultimately about perception and awareness. So I think, you know, that is the key of sort of, you could call it education, or I call it attitude. No, attitude is everything. Um, and it's inculcating a certain attitude that I'm going to use technology where it serves me for basic needs but I'm not going to be trapped by it because it's so mm, available and um, ultimately misleading, unhelpful, uh, because it paralyzes you after a while. You, you travel, you I mean, like you get all your information about a place, for example, and then you don't even have to go there. Huh. Uh, you substitute the online experience for actually going there, and you and you misled into thinking, oh, I've been there, I now I know about that place, whereas in fact, you don't know anything. Uh, you know, you've been cheated. <laughs> so it's the way you approach it, the way you think about it. Yeah, I can, I can completely see that. And I, I've seen that happen. I've seen this, this disconnect happen when, when people are experiencing something that they didn't expect to happen because they had so much information that was so partial to what the place actually had to deliver. And then there's that whole idea of expectations. Yeah, the internet and builds all these expectations in you, and then you go there, and it's not like that. And so you're either disappointed or you're enlightened, I mean, depending, again, on your attitude. I'm curious, since we're almost to the top of the hour here, um, 
what where your energy is going to go in the next few months if you if you if you can find some time from your from your book uh, business what creative projects do you would you do you savor throwing yourself into in the next in the next coming months well i have a, a poetry book right now all ready to be published i just need the money to self publish it uh, i'm working on another book of poetry uh, i'm i do want to go this summer i want to go back to the netherlands again um, I have uh, an online girlfriend in Tajikistan huh. who who I'm basically supporting, who I want to go visit maybe later this year or next spring. Um, and I have house projects here. My daughter lives with me now. My, my two granddaughters live here also in the house. I have some friends living on the premises as well. Um, so um, there's lots to do. Um, I, uh, right now, mainly I'm trying to clarify my life, make things simpler, get rid of possessions, simplify my pro processes so that maybe I could get back to focusing on some projects that are still meaningful to me, like writing books. Time is an issue. I'm short of time. Yeah, but I like I like that attitude. I think it's 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 good to have too many projects than too few at any point in your life. Yeah, I think so. No, I am. I'm. I'm very rich in that respect, and I feel that you know my life is is full of riches. I mean, I have my children with me. I have friends. I I have uh, my books, which I love. I have lots of dreams and hopes, and life is good. Um, you know, even if none of this happens, even if none of this manifests, I, I'm happy as a bug, and I'm pleased that. Um, that through my books, especially books and photos, that I've inspired a lot of people to wake up and, you know, revolutionize their own lives and have a clearer view of themselves in the world. And that means a lot to me. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Ed Buren's writing and photography, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviateatrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>